Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. I was uh, studying shepherds a lot the past couple weeks because today is what's called in Latin, Guadete Sunday, which is Latin for joy uh, or something. And um, we, on, on Guadete Sunday, we look at the characters of the shepherds in Luke 2, and we look at the topic of joy and how those two are associated. And I learned something new about the shepherds as I was studying them, because I feel like growing up uh, in the church, I always heard the stories that you know shepherds are the lowest rung of society. They're like outcasts. It's the job nobody wanted to do. They're dirty. They smell like sheep. And they... Um, <laughs> um, but the thing I learned this week is that they were probably young. You can tell we didn't coordinate with the drama department, but uh, they like if you own um, sheep, it's, it's like the older people, it's the parents who own the sheep, and it's the kids that they say, hey, you're young, you can stay up all night, you go watch the sheep. So it's like tweens and teens going out to watch them. And uh, ironically, I was talking to Carolyn Schmidt uh, before the first service, I don't know if she's in here today, uh, right now, but she told me, she randomly happened to mention me, she's like, yeah, when I was a little kid, I was a shepherd, and I was like, oh, perfect, I'm using that in my sermon today, so uh, you can ask Carolyn about her being a shepherd when she was a little girl, uh, and that's the other thing I learned is they, they would have been boys and girls, not just boys, and I, I was thinking, why would this be important if we're talking about the shepherds going to see Jesus, and I think it, it fills in some of the gaps I've always had. For instance, who did they leave the sheep with? Because if you tell a grown adult, hey, go check this thing out, uh, they're gonna say, okay, but who's gonna wash the sheep? But if you tell a teenager, hey, go check this thing out, it's gonna change your life, it's gonna be awesome, they're gonna say like, what sheep? <laughs> they're, just, they're, they're just going, um, they leave the sheep unattended and um, everything happens to work out when you're a teenager, it's great. But the second thing <laughs> I know about teenagers is they, they, they get stoked, they get amped up, so easily, like um, like they'll go from zero to 100 super easily. It's like, hey, we're gonna duct tape you to a wall. And they're like, yeah! Like, hey, we're gonna put blindfolds on you and make you run really fast. And they're like, all right, let's do it! You know, this is why I love being a youth pastor. Like, we're gonna pour slime all over you. And they're like, yes! So it's like, who did God want to go be the first people to see Jesus after he was born? These shepherds who are dirty, outcast, lowest rung of society, and young because joy was easy for them. If you're a young person, I feel like joy comes easily, and the older we get, the harder it is for us to tap back into that. And um, the shepherds weren't the first person to come into contact with Jesus and experience joy. Actually, it happens in the first chapter of Luke. If you go back a chapter, uh, it says that when John the Baptist was still inside his mother, she came close to Mary when she was still pregnant with Jesus, and John the Baptist, inside his mother, leapt for joy. And the shepherds are the second person named in Scripture as getting close to Jesus and experiencing this joy. So that's what we're talking about today is joy, the Sunday of joy, the third Sunday in Advent. And often, when a pastor says we're going to talk about joy, the thing that my mind always thinks of is great. They're going to say be happier, smile, 
be more optimistic. Just like, it doesn't really matter what you're going through, but just grin, just cheer up a little bit. Anybody know uh, in 2014 what the number one song to play at funerals was in the United Kingdom? It's a very specific question. <laughs> Does anybody know it? <laughs> um, okay, I'll tell you. It was um, uh, by, by my favorite, favorite, favorite comedy group in the world, Monty Python. And it was always look on the bright side of life. Um, in the first service, I sang it. And afterward, uh, 200 people begged me not to do it again. So um, you can just read those lyrics. It's just like, it's from their movie, The Life of Brian. And it's just like, um, it's hilarious in the context, but it's just like, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. Basically, just smile. Just, okay, I'm gonna do it. Always look on the bright side of life. Yes, okay, good. Some people in the first service knew it too. And then that's all, that's all you get, sorry. But <laughs> now you know why Aaron leads worship and I don't. But um, always look on the bright side of life. Like, is this what we talk about when we're talking about Christian joy? Is this what it means that we just always look on the bright side? Like, we're gonna get to this later in the sermon, but Paul says rejoice always. Is this what he means? Just be like Monty Python, pop on a British accent and smile. It doesn't matter if you're going through the worst week of your life. It doesn't matter if you're suffering or struggling or lost your job or you're sick. Just look on the bright side. Is this what the Bible means when it calls us to rejoice always, to be filled with joy? So today, we're gonna talk about this uh, from two angles. We're gonna talk about the, the basis or the foundation for Christian joy, which is joy as hope. And then the second one, I couldn't think of a better word, maybe one of you can, um, but we're gonna talk about joy as depth, or what is joy? What is this thing that we're talking about when we talk about joy in the Christian mind. So first we're gonna talk about joy as hope. There's a story of a pastor. He was meeting with a woman and they were planning out her funeral. And she was telling the pastor what she wanted uh, at her own funeral. Uh, and she said, I wanna be buried with a fork in my hand. And the pastor's like, okay, strange request, why? And she said, because I worked a lot of church dinners, a lot of church functions, and every time, what we would do is the main course would be served, you know, everybody eats the main course, and then we start clearing away the plates for the main course, and what do they say? Hold on to your forks. Why? Because the best is yet to come. Because dessert is still on its way, and the best is yet to come. And she said, when I'm buried in my casket, I want to hold on to my fork so that everybody can see me and know the best is still yet to come for me. There's this Jewish idea that we kind of see sprinkled throughout the Bible. Like in Psalm 105, uh, we see this idea that uh, your, your present hope, sorry, your present joy is predicated on what you expect in the future. In other words, you can have joy now because of what you think is coming. Uh, in Psalm 105, it's talking about the Israelites leaving Egypt. And if you're familiar with that story, they leave Egypt and where do they go for 40 years? The desert the wilderness, and yet in Psalm 105, it describes uh, the Israelites coming out with rejoicing. He leads his chosen ones out with shouts of joy. Were they in the promised land yet? No, 
They wouldn't get there for 40 years, and yet they're still coming out of Egypt with rejoicing. Why? Because they knew where they were going. They're teleos, if you're a philosophy nerd like me. Um, They knew where they were going, and that informed the joy that they had in the present. You see how that works? Another fun fact. Uh, In 1570, it was the first time the phrase, and they lived happily ever after, appeared. This phrase wasn't in the context of uh, two people falling in love, getting married, have a su- having a super romantic honeymoon, and living happily ever after. It was originally used to describe Christian hope. And it'd be about 150 more years before it was hijacked by the romantics and used to just describe two people falling in love and living happily ever after. Because originally, this phrase described Christian hope. Because no matter what you're going through right now in this season, no matter where you are, and no matter what comes at you in this life, where are we going? Happily ever after. That's where Christians are going. Another way to put it in more modern terms is imagine two men, and uh, they're told, um, you have to be in this room, and you have to work this arduous job that everybody hates, and you have to do it for a year. So imagine there's two men, same room, Same job, but the first man is promised that at the end of the year, he's going to receive $20,000, or, uh, you know, in this economy, $30,000. We'll be generous, right? He has to, uh, at the end of the year, you get an average salary. It's like, yeah, uh, you're going to get a reward. Um, Like, what's his attitude when he's working that job? Okay, at the end of the year, get an average salary. But the second man, they told him he's going to receive $2 million dollars at the end of the year. These two men, during those 365 days, they're having the same experience, they're in the same situation, but what's their attitude like? Every single day of those 365 days is the same. Same job, same room, but completely different attitude, completely different mindset. Why? Because of what they expect in the future. The second man is saying, this is awesome. This is all I have to do for a year? And I get two million? This is great, right? What he expects about the future informs his present. So this is the foundation of Christian joy. What we believe is coming informs our current state. It informs the season we're in today. And a lot of you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's great, but that's still like, what am I supposed to do in the meantime, between now and then? What about the experiences I'm going through right now before I get to the happily ever after part. And that brings us to the second part, which is joy as depth. Joy as depth. I I looked up on Google the definition of joy, and Google defines joy as a noun. The noun part I agree with. The rest of the definition I don't agree with so much. They say it's, it's a feeling, joy is a feeling, of great pleasure and happiness. I don't know if I agree with that definition. I know I'm not supposed to disagree with Google, but I don't know if I agree with this definition. And let me tell you why. Because emotions, um, the best definition I've heard of emotions, emotions are, are the way that we as human beings adjust ourselves to reality. Emotions are how we adjust ourselves to reality. So when things change in our life, when we have loss and we have to get used to a new way of moving forward, 
we feel emotions about that. When we lose someone or something, we feel emotions, and that's how we are adjusting to this new reality. Maybe we get angry. When someone's born, we get joyful. We get happy, right? These are emotions. These are how we react to things that happen in our life. And I don't think joy is an emotion. I don't think joy is an emotion. I think joy is a way by which we can experience all the other emotions. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, there's a story Rob Bell tells, and instantly half of you are like, uh-oh, red, red flags. Um, Rob Bell tells a story of this time that he, he was going to speak um, on a stage with the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu. Um, and if you don't know who these two men are, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. So, so the Dalai Lama, um, he was born in Tibet, and he was born shortly before the Chinese invasion of Tibet, during which um, the Chinese came in and they killed or tortured about 1.2 million Tibetans. And for the past several decades of his life, the Dalai Lama has been in exile from his home country of Tibet. Meaning, when you're in exile, you can't go home. Imagine not being able to return to your home country for decades. Like, you, you got in a Facebook fight with one of your family members this past week, and you're like, I have so many haters. The Dalai Lama also has haters. It's called China. <laughs> um, so imagine that you're the Dalai Lama. You can't go home. You're in, ex in exile. Millions of your people were tortured and killed. Bishop Desmond Tutu... He's from South Africa. He lived through South African apartheid, which again, if you're not familiar, about 10,000 of his countrymen were killed during this uh, apartheid revolution, and 30,000 were imprisoned, including his friend Nelson Mandela, simply, uh, primarily for the color of their skin. And so he knows what it's like to be discriminated against, to suffer. Both men have seen the horrors of what humanity can do to each other. They've seen suffering, they've seen agony. And so Rob Bell describes this moment where he's backstage and he's waiting to see these two be reunited because they were friends. They hadn't seen each other in years and they're about to be reunited. And Rob Bell's like, what do I expect? Like, like what's gonna happen? These two men are like rich, uh, like rich in wisdom. They have profound experiences of life. Uh, they're wise, like, what do I expect? And he sees these two men. Uh, one comes in from one side, the other comes in from the other side. They meet in the middle and they hug. And then they begin tickling each other. And then they begin giggling and like pulling on each other's noses and playing with their fingers. And they have this like crazy exchange. And Rob Bell, he said he's standing right in front of them and he's watching this happen. And he's like, what am I watching right now? He says, I don't know what I expected, but it was not that. <laughs> like, you don't expect the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu to come in and tickle each other and then giggle like little girls. And he describes the, the moment and he says, he says, it wasn't just light. Like some people can kind of float up here, living on the surface, never go super deep. And he says, but it also wasn't heavy. These two men who've seen so much suffering, loss and death, they didn't come in heavy and serious and burdened, he said, what they had is the kind of lightness that you get when you go through the heaviness and you go through the depths and you come out the other side. 
because that's a different type of lightness. It's a different type of happiness. It's something you might almost call joy when you go through that because joy, this is what I've concluded. This is my definition of joy. Um, The opposite of joy, I think, is not anger. It's not sadness. It's not grief. The opposite of joy is numbness. The opposite of joy is when you don't go deep. Because when somebody is truly joyful, I think they laugh really easily. But I think they also cry really easily. And, it, and I think that there are people who are like a rubber band, right? I think joy is like a rubber band. Because if you're only willing to go so deep, and you, you don't want to go too deep because it, because it hurts, because it's painful, because you get angry and you just escape into Netflix or something else. You don't want to go too deep and feel the depth of these emotions, then how high can you go? Not that high, right? But what about when someone's willing to go deep? They're willing to feel the depth of the human experience, and they go really, really deep. How, how much higher are the highs then? Way higher, right? Joy is big enough to wrap its arms around the whole thing. Joy is going deep so that you can go really high later on. The opposite of joy is numbness. Uh, Brene Brown has this quote where she describes what she expected when she came into faith, and she said, I hoped faith would be an epidural for the pain. In other words, I hoped hoped faith would numb the pain. But it turns out that faith is a midwife who says, push, I'm here, and sometimes it hurts. It's supposed to hurt a little bit, but keep going. Joy is not simply smiling and moving on with it regardless of what you're going through. Joy is feeling every single bit of it because joy is big enough to hold it all, the highs and the lows, right? Even when Jesus is on the cross, did you know that he is offered two different sponges of wine? One of them he takes and one of them he denies. He drinks the one sponge that's filled with normal wine when they offer him that sponge, and then later they come back and they offer him a second sponge. And this sponge is filled with a special type of wine, and it had some kind of anesthetic in it which would numb the pain he was feeling. It would reduce the excruciating pain of being crucified. Did you know that that word excruciating is a combination of two Greek words, ex meaning out of, Cruce, meaning the cross. This type of pain Jesus was in, they had to invent a new word for it when Rome invented crucifixion. It's pain that can only come out of the cross. So next time you stub your toe, you probably shouldn't say, I'm in excruciating pain, because you're not. You're not feeling the pain of the cross, but Jesus was. He's hanging there, suffocating, suffering, and they offer him this thing that would reduce his pain, and what does Jesus do? He says, no. I will not accept anything that will, that will numb me, that will reduce my experience of humanity. And I think that this is what joy looks like. Joy takes in the full experience. Because what does Hebrews 12, 2 say about when Jesus was on the cross? It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus didn't come and suffer and die on the cross simply because it was the right thing to do. He did it because descending to those depths 
the lowest low a human could descend to, the most pain a human being could feel, allowed him then to enter into the deepest levels of joy. So at least two times in the Bible, Paul commands us to rejoice always. Rejoice always. And up until the past couple of weeks, I always read those and I was like, oh gosh, why? <laughs> like, but what do you do like when your dog dies? What do you do when more serious things happen? Am I still supposed to rejoice then? And then you even look at other passages that Paul wrote. Like in 2 Corinthians, Paul says these. He says, we despaired of life itself. Does this sound like a joyful person? I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. I want to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Are these things that you typically think of when you think of a joyful person? Is Paul not taking his own advice? Did he just forget to rejoice always on that day? Or is his definition of joy maybe a bit bigger than ours? Look at the character of Jesus. What does Jesus do? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? John eleven thirty five says, Jesus wept. Yeah. John, uh, other places in the Bible, what does Jesus do in the temple? He loses his cool. He gets angry. He flips over the tables in the temple and like whips people with a cord. If you saw Jesus, you only heard those two stories, and you said, he, he got angry in the temple and turned over tables and he cried. Would you think Jesus was a joyful person? Was Jesus not taking Paul's advice to rejoice always? But then it gets even more confusing because Hebrews 1.9 tells us that Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy. Are these two things what you would expect from somebody who was anointed with the oil of joy? Again, maybe joy is a lot bigger than we expected. Maybe joy has room for anger. It has room for when we see injustice, like Jesus saw in the temple, to get angry and to let that anger out. And it has room for when your friends Lazarus or John the Baptist die to weep, to cry deeply. It's similar to uh, Mother Teresa, who lived last century. And uh, Mother Teresa says, um, she said, I was born into a happy and comfortable and loving home. She was born in North Macedonia, and she said, my parents were great. They were loving, and I had a happy life, but I left the happy and comfortable life to go down to Calcutta in India, which at the time was one of the worst places on earth. People were still living, but they were lying in the street half eaten by worms. They were it was just one of the absolute worst places. And then on top of that, there were uh, fighting between Hindus and Muslims or Buddhists. I can't remember. Someone. Um, <laughs> someone's whispering something, and you probably know it. I forgot. But it was an awful, awful place. And the first thing she did, um, I learned this this week. I assume that she only started orphanages, but the first home she started wasn't an orphanage, an orphanage. It was a home for the dying. Because she said she saw these people lying in the streets, forgotten, neglected, dying, alone. And she said they may have had awful births, awful youths, awful lives, but at least we can give them a place where they can come and they can die feeling loved, feeling like they're not alone. 
And so she started this home for the dying. And years later, somebody asked her, Mother Teresa, what is it that gives you the most joy? And she said, watching someone die with a smile on their face. Watching someone die with a smile on their face. And, and I, I think about my own answer. What gives me the most joy? And I'd probably say like a board game night with my friends, right? Like they're not on the same level, right? They're, they're, there's a depth to joy that you have to go down to. You have to go deeper if you want to get to the deeper parts of joy. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not just floating up here on the surface. This is why I've never liked stand-up comedy because it just kind of stays up here and you're supposed to laugh at it. And it's like, where, where, am I, where am I getting fed? Why is my soul here? Because joy descends deeper. And later in a different interview, Mother Teresa said, why did you leave, uh, why did I leave my happy home to go to India? She said the same thing Jesus said, for the joy. She didn't do it because she was a good person, she wanted to impress God or whatever. She said, I, I moved to India for the joy because, because she, she wasn't scared to go deep. She wasn't scared to go to the lowest, the worst place on earth in order to then receive the great heights that came with it of joy. Joy doesn't take shortcuts. Joy isn't scared to go deep, and joy is big enough to wrap its arms around the entire human experience. So my question then for you is, what does joy look like for you in the season where you are? Because you probably won't move to India and hold people while they die. But what does it look like for you in this season right now? Maybe joy doesn't look like just pretending to be happy even though you're stressed and anxious or you're going through a hard time or hard memories come back this time of year. So what does joy look like for you now? Maybe joy looks something like a long, tearful cry session. Invite the Holy Spirit into that time and shed holy tears. Maybe for you, joy looks like letting out some anger that you've been holding, taking a baseball bat and just going out and brutalizing a tree, letting the anger out. Maybe it looks like laughter because things are going well for you because you have a good community around you and you can enjoy that, the richness of that. Whatever season you're in, I encourage you to drink deeply from the wells of joy. It doesn't look like happiness. It transcends all the other emotions. Joy is a place where all the other emotions can exist and it's founded on hope. Joy and hope are intimately married because we know that no matter what season we're going through, it'll end, but the best is yet to come. And that's what we look forward to. And in Advent, we're in this tension of saying that we're waiting for Jesus to come, we're longing for that, but we also recognize he has come. So we have even more joy and hope of living between those two time places in time. I'm gonna pray for us, and then Aaron will lead us back into worship. Jesus, I thank you so much for the community here at South. I thank you that this is a place where we can come and we can bring all of ourselves. We can bring our anger, we can bring our sadness, and we can bring our happiness. And that you can handle it all, Jesus. We thank you for all of it. And we just ask that in this season, you would teach us what joy looks like for us. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Mm -hmm.
If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.